Ladies and gents, a very warm welcome to the IET here in the heart of London. My name's Simon Aaron. I'm the Features Editor of Motorsport Magazine. It's my great privilege this evening to be hosting our Formula One preview evening. We're almost ready to start, but first, tiny bit of timekeeping, uh, housekeeping, not timekeeping. Um, no tracing on the brain. Um, firstly, this is the first time we've done an event like this, so thank you all for supporting it. This kind of thing couldn't happen without you. I'd also like to thank our two partners, headline partner, Footman, Footman James Insurance, been a specialist in classic car insurance for 35 years, and Classic and Sports Finance. Thank you very much to them. I'm sure if you're familiar with the magazine that you'd be familiar with the gentleman to my right, but I'll introduce them anyway. Over on the right, 1996 world champion, Damon Hill. To his left, Karun Chandok, a lot of racing success in India, Asia, came over to Europe, did well in Formula 3, won GP2 races, and then got into Formula 1 with a car that wasn't quite as quick as his GP2 car, but has, 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 has since raced in the World Endurance Championship, and if you look at YouTube, you'll find him hurtling around Goodwin and McLaren M1 with a great deal of vim. Karun. And last but not least, long-standing friend of mine, our Grand Prix editor, Mark Hughes. People sometimes say to me, your mate Hughes, what does he actually know about driving cars? <laughs> and the answer is actually quite, the, the answer is if you look at the finalists for the 1980 Jim Russell World Final, there were three of them. Stefan Beloff, who was quite handy. Kiki Mansilla, who actually won it. And Mark was the third one. He's very modest about that but he does understand the dynamics of driving racing cars. So, warm, warm hand from Mark Hughes. <laughs> Gents, we'll now get down to the business of talking about, actually one more thing. We do have the, thank you also to everyone who's bought tickets for the raffle. The, um, the proceeds are going to be split between two charities. One is the Halo Project, which provides support for children with learning difficulties, young people with learning difficulties. Damon is a patron. And the other one is VDCT, which provides educational opportunities for underprivileged children in India, and Karun is a patron of that. So your, your, uh, your support for that is very, very welcome. Thank you. Right, gentlemen, 2019 Formula One season. Before we start, by way of a little bit of context, Lewis Hamilton going for a sixth title. Looking in from the outside, I got the impression last year, in his 12th Formula One season, that he seemed to be getting better. Mark? Um, yes, I, th yeah, I think he was. Um, not that he's got faster or anything like that. He's, he's, he's as quick as he when he came in. But um, in the way he's applied himself and in his understanding of himself and of how he can make things happen around him within the team, He's become much better at that over the, probably the last two or three years. And also, I think the team environment, once Nico retired and stopped winding them up, um, <laughs> he, he just came into a comfort zone. 
And I mean, Nick, Nick was quite honest about that. He said, absolutely use psychological warfare against him. He said, because otherwise I would have to just rely on Madriven. And he said, he's, you know, he's phenomenal. So absolutely, I had to use something. Um, so that disappeared, and they got Valtteri in, who's a very different sort of character and doesn't operate that way. And I, I think that's played its part as well. He says it has. He says that's played its part in him reaching a, a different level because he's not constantly responding to whatever hand grenade Nico's thrown into the driver briefing or whatever. So it's, yeah, yeah definitely. He's, he's, he was at his, his peak last year, I think. And he's 34 now. Um, Damon, your career model's a bit different from Lewis's. Lewis was world champion at 23. You were starting out in junior Formula Ford at 23. Yeah. That, that model doesn't work anymore, does it? Um, you mean my, my model? Yes, no, your model. No, no, no. no, 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 no. I, I don't work anymore either. No, no. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, uh, I, I, would, I would not recommend my career path to anybody. I mean, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was off the rails, but, you know, and then miraculously I ended up in Formula One at the right place at the right time, but, and with a you know, competitive car. So I, uh, I hit the ground running when I got that, um, and things went, went past very quickly. And before I knew it, I was retired. But, um, you, know, <laughs> but um, you know, Lewis is, I, I'm going to measure Lewis from this point onwards, because yeah. for me, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I, I would have got five world championships by the time I was 33, if I'd been in Formula One when obvious. I was 23. Yeah, it's obvious. So, um, so I think, uh, I think that's, that's going to be interesting to me, watching how, whether or not he pulls this one off um, it looks from testing like the Ferraris are going to be a tougher nut to crack than they were last year. Um, but you, it looked like this last year and Mercedes managed to, to win it. So um, it's, got a, it's a hell of a carrot, isn't it? Six world titles just puts you um, in a very select group, just him and, and Schumacher, um, and knocking on the door of equaling Michael's uh, tally. Um, not forgetting that Sebastian Vettel will be very keen um, to, to catch him up and get on five. You, know, you mentioned testing. You two, I know you were watching testing on telly. You two were both uh, trackside. I presume you both crunched some numbers. We've seen all sorts of stories, most of them suggesting that Ferrari did have an advantage. But from your calculated assessments, how far ahead is Ferrari at the moment? Uh, I had a look at some of the race runs um, because the problem with the one lap simulation, you know, qualifying simulations is it's just, it's a bit of a nonsense really because they're doing it at different times and different fuels and all sorts. But when you start to dig through the race runs, uh, you know, it's safe to say they're two or three tenths off the Mercedes at the moment. And, but it's, you know, there's one thing looking at numbers because nowadays it's not like in, in Damon's time where, where, you know, you had a car and an, the engine and it was fuel loads of weight. Now they've got all the ERS stuff with the electrical energy and deployment. You know, they can change the lap time by six tenths just based on the ERS strategies. So you have to be a little bit careful. But, you know, I went out to watch Trackside on three, three out of the eight days. Um, I spent a lot of time wandering around. And I enjoy that because, you know, we, we go off to all these races around the year. And it's very rare that we actually see a car on track. You know, most of the time it's spent in the paddock watching it on a screen just like all of you at home. So it's quite nice to actually watch a car on track. And um, I, I love going to testing every year and I, I pick the same spots because you can see year on year what it's like. And unquestionably the Ferrari looked hooked up out on track. It, it looked effortless. It looked like the drivers were able to drive at 90% and still just deliver a lap time in a metronomic lap after lap way. It just looked easy. There was the odd lap where, you know, I was watching our turn one and Leclerc sort of going a bit deep and you thought, oh, he's going to miss the line there. And the car would step out of line, but he could still 
pick out throttle and it just it came back and you go wow that that looks good that just looks easy to drive so I, I, I do think that they are slightly ahead but uh, you know I think Mark you know Mark and I talked about last year I think Ferrari had a quicker car arguably at 11, 11 of the races and you could say they were equal at three or four and Mercedes certainly had a quicker car at less races last year yeah. yet Lewis won the championship with races to spare so you know, Seb and Ferrari arguably lost it as much as Lewis won it, but Lewis was brilliant last season. Um, Damon gets loads of abuse for being pro Lewis and all sorts on, on Twitter, but it's true. When the guy's amazing, yeah, you got to praise him. Being not pro Lewis, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, so I, I do think Ferrari are slightly ahead at this stage. One for all three of you. How do you think the dynamic of Ferrari is going to work? Seb hasn't got great previous when he's had a thrusting young teammate put alongside him, Ricciardo in 2014, wasn't his finest season. And last year he seemed to be a bit destabilised by the internal politics of Ferrari. But, I mean, how do you think, with the extra five years of maturity, do you think he's going to be able to cope with Leclerc or...? I think there's two, there's negative and positive for Seb, and uh, then the negative for him is, is having this ambitious and very quick teammate. Um, but the positive is that it's going to be a much calmer environment. Um, there were times last year when Seb was absolutely alone in that team and there was a lot of uh, friction in the team in the way it was being run. Um, so, you know, you're operating at the outer edges of your, your ability and you're having to make split-second decisions. If you're not in a frame of mind where you're, everything's taken care of, you're not going to make the, the, as good a decision as you would. You're not going to be operating at your peak. And I think... It's very difficult to decouple Seb's um, errors. Like he, did, he made lots of errors. But I think it's very difficult to decouple those from the environment in which you're in. And I think it's going to be a much, much better environment. Um, and talking to some of the people in there, um, they say it's like night and day. It's, it's already like night and day. But it's, that, it's I mean, um, does that doesn't account for some of his... Sebastian's kind of a rush of blood to the head moments. Does no, it? no, I mean, he's, he's prone to that. Yeah. And I think if, you, if the guy that's your main chance, which he was, you, you know is prone to that, you, you try and keep the pressure off him. And actually, they ramped it onto him. Well, they, they mismanaged the situation in quite a few races, didn't they? I mean, Hockenheim, it took forever to get Kimi out of the way. Uh, and eventually it took Kimi to say, listen, just tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. Do, you want me to uh, do you want me to get out of the way? They went, yeah, could you get out of the way? And he was, oh, all right then. And it's like, you know, but they wasted, you know, they, it was something like six or seven seconds they wasted at a time when the drizzle started coming down and Lewis was, was and, coming and along. And they used their world championship contender to tow the guy they were about to sack yeah. to pull position. And then they sacked him on race <laughs> day morning in Monza. It was ridiculous. You know, so there was, a, there was certainly a degree of mismanagement. I think... What we're, just sorry, just to pick up on where Mark was saying, I think when you know when you look at the race runs, um, unfortunately Seb's car broke down when he did two stints. He only did 31 laps in Barcelona, but at the end of the 31 laps, he was only 0.0. Uh, I think it was only three tenths ahead of Leclerc, after, you know, on a 31 lap stint. So you'd have to say Leclerc. Leclerc, he's a real deal. He's, I first met him in 2015. I've known him for a while. Um, I went to see him in an F3 race, and I walked in the back of the, of the truck, he was with Van Amersfoort racing, and they just finished free practice, and he wasn't particularly outstanding, the car was a bit tricky, and he was actually behind one of his teammates. 
But in the back of the truck, all of the engineers, the whole team was around this kid. And the other two drivers are just sort of standing there, you know, polishing their, their helmets and getting their kit ready and having a drink. It's like, what's going on? And he'd managed to sort of pull this whole team around him. And, you know, he, he had this star quality, I think, uh, from a very young age. And he, he 16, certainly got 17 it. 16, 17 kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, he, he, and, he, and, he, and, and clearly he could drive, you know, that's, that's yeah, a given. But you I know, think... In testing, Karen, you know what it's like. If you're an old hand like Sebastian is, even though he's still quite young, yeah. um, uh, you, you, don't, you don't show everything you've got. Uh, and, you know, if you can just keep level with the, with the new guy, yeah. the new guy would be busting a gut to beat you. You know that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if he can't quite, quite do that, then yeah. you know you've kind of got a bit, a bit more in yeah. hand. So, so we'll I think, see. Yeah, you're right. And, and actually, when you look at the stats last year, one, one thing that Leclerc clearly um, will need to work on is qualifying. You know, if you look at... The 21 races, he was a driver who lined up his three sectors the least on the grid. He only did it three times last year. And the guy who lined it up the most was Sebastian Vettel. 11 out of 21, he, he had all three. And I mean, Seb's brilliant. I, I think back, there was a China qualifying, was it 2009 or 10? He, he had one run, run. Oh, he had a one drive shaft problem. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. Get, said, you've got one lap of qualifying. And he went bang and took pole. That's, like, that's that yeah, is impressive. That I think when you're a rookie, especially if you're not in a, a potentially race-winning car, you get um, a, quite a few free passes. Yeah. You can have a quiet weekend and nobody really notices. Um, it's that relentless grind when the spotlight's on you and you're in a title-contending car. That's where you, the experience will show. Um, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying that the, he did have, for all that he was outstanding and the, his best stuff was mm. exceptional... He did have quite a few yeah, yeah. quiet weekends. Absolutely. Um, I think the other one um, to watch out is how Ferrari now operate technically and, and how they're able to bring the updates to it. Because you know, they had Arriva Bene, who was a team principal, and you know, Matteo Benotto was technical director. Now, both of those are 24-7, 365 jobs. Uh, Matteo's sort of now sitting over both. Um, you know, obviously they would have had to restructure technically and things like that. But, you know, this is a guy, the, the one thing you can't fault Ferrari on or Matteo on is that they delivered a quick car. Um, the updates went a bit wrong towards the back in the last season. But across the last two years, they 17, they would have needed Seb to have a perfect season. Mm-hmm. Last year, certainly he could have won the championship. Yeah. Um, you can't fault that part of Pinotto's role. So... I'm interested to see how that plays out now. That you know, if he's taken his eye off the, the technical side, is from, the structure strong enough? Yeah, from what I understand, he's never been the ideas guy of the technical department. He's he's very solid engineer, but um, his big skill, as I understand, is is managing a group of creative people and creating the right environment. Like, like, do Ross, it. like Ross Braun did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's more of a Ross Braun than an Adrian New. Mm. Um, so as long as the strength and depth there in, in the structure of the organization, I, th- I, I think it'll be fine. Um, so it's then just a question, operationally, can they smooth it out? And I do think a big part of their iffy operations last year was just the awful environment that had yeah. been created, the awful personal environment. It, but the, the personalities are very different, aren't they? I mean, um, I remember last year, we were all flying back from Mexico, the Grand Prix, and we were all wandering to the plane. and. I was chatting with Christian Horner, and you know, there's like the, the circus was leaving town. You had all the the Liberty guys and all the Ferrari, and we're all walking down to this plane. All of a sudden, you hear beep, 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 and this 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 car, the electric buggy is coming along, 
and it was Maurizio Rivibene sitting in the front seat, sort of <laughs> waving as he drove past everybody. And, and actually, behind him was Binotto walking with the, with the other engineers. And he just sort of shook his head as, as Maurizio drove past. And to me, that was a really interesting moment to actually see the difference in the personalities. And um, I think, you know, certainly uh, from, again, people I spoke to at the test, they, they do connect with, with Matteo on a more human level. So look, he's, he's very much... Uh, a person that they can talk to more and, and deal with issues, you know, one-to-one and, and in a less combative way. Let's move on to Mercedes. Has it sort of, through circumstance, almost become a one-car team? Almost. I know Bottas had some good drives last year. He was quicker at times. But he also had some rotten luck. And it seemed as the year went on and Lewis got stronger, that Valtteri yeah. kind of just faded away to a sort of... Uh, it's just it's not quite quick enough. It was a similar pattern to 17, actually. Um, and you got to the summer break, and then suddenly it became obvious that Lewis was going to be the title contender. Um, and I think in 17, actually informed him um, at Spa. So, look, you're in support now. And I, I did seem to knock him back, in, not, you know, just psychologically. And it took him a few races before he wasn't being absolutely pasted by Lewis. So I think um, when everything's going well for him, uh, he's, he's, he's very quick, super quick. And on those occasions when the car's a little bit unbalanced and you, Lewis can sometimes be overstriving to try and pull a, a time out of it that it can't do, you'll quite often find Valtteri ahead because he just goes with what he's got. Um, but over a season, it's, it's not structured as a one-car team, but over a season, it's just inevitable. That's the level of performance Lewis is bringing, so it becomes that, usually by the second half of the season. Do you think, in terms of Mercedes' title chances, though, they're actually better with the setup they've got than they would be maybe by bringing somebody fiery like Ocon into the second car? Well, I think I think it's um, it's a nice safe position for Lewis, isn't it? You know, he he knows across the season. Typically, uh, as Mark touched on, there's a low grip circuits, um, Sochi, Baku, you know, places where it, it tends to be a little bit front limited, and the, the, the grip's not there, especially in the the first braking entry phase of the corner. We saw Lewis struggle more, even in 2017. Actually, there were yeah. more races. Monaco was another one. Mexico, 17 is yeah. Mexico. You know, um, I think Lewis in 18 sort of, you know. Got, got rid of some of those low weekends. Um, mm. But across the season, he's, he's still ahead. And ultimately, yes, Valtteri should have won four races. Well, should have won three, three arguably four, four yeah. last season. But, you know, his teammate won 11 in the World Championship. And it can't be easy for Valtteri. I mean, you know, David, you, you, you're better place to talk about this. But, you know, Lewis is up against, sorry, Valtteri's up against the best driver in his generation. You know, Damon had Prost, Senna, and Mansell all as teammates in three years. That was, that was just for starters. <laughs> Those were the first three years of his career, so it's a pretty. Uh, it can't be easy. Um, uh, wait, how hard is it being in one of the best cars in Formula One? You know, um, I think Valtteri is, is very uh, pleased to be where he is, and he knows he's got a great opportunity. But you're right. You know, every driver thinks that the other driver is beatable, and uh, when you come up against someone who's as good as Lewis Hamilton, you can't beat them. It, it, it does become a little bit baffling. And you've, we've seen so many drivers come unstuck with when they're teammates to Michael Schumacher um, and people who thought themselves to be, you know, 
front-running drivers, and then they just couldn't seem to overcome this guy. And it does it does crush you eventually. You know that that's the that's the worry is that Valtteri will become, you know, he's got to make a decision. Either he, um, uh, Ross Brawn was used to say to people who were with with Michael, you know, just say, well, just settle for second place. And like Eddie, you know, like yeah. Eddie, Eddie yeah. Irvine yeah. had a, you know, came out of it very yeah. happy, didn't he? Made a ton of money, accepted he was number two, and lived yeah. a really happy life. Yeah, instead, <laughs> instead of, whereas Rubens was pretty miserable, wasn't he, at the end of it, because he kept trying to beat Michael. And he did do sometimes. He so did, so, and Massa did quite a good job occasionally too. Yeah. So, um, it, it, you know, all these guys are beatable. I always believe that they're all beatable. Um, but you know, I wouldn't like to be in a team uh, w- with a teammate who was unbeatable because I think that would that would uh, that would make me feel a bit, bit anxious. I never found out how I would have matched up to to Ayrton. I mean, he was he pretty much thrashed me in all the three races I was in with him. Um, but uh, I got to within three tenths. And I, the way I looked at it was Gerhard was sometimes you know was about two tenths, three tenths off Ayrton. I thought if I can do better than Gerhard, then that would be good. Um, and um, but anyway, we never got to find out. But um, you know, it's it's also a journey as well, isn't it? It's a very it seems like a trite thing to say, but you know, someone like Valtteri Bottas, he's got to he's got to get his head around where he is, the opportunity he has, and um, to do to do better than he did do last year because he he actually didn't shine, I don't think, last year, and and that's what we're looking for—a little bit of a flash of brilliance somewhere. He's got Ocon hanging over his head, isn't he? For that seat. Of course he is. You know, and that's the that's the awful and uncomfortable thing. He knows his time is limited unless he does something. Brilliant, and I think that's, um, you know, a lot of people talked about Stoffel van Dorm and what a great driver. He never did anything that made you think, wow, you know? And it, even if, you know, Magnussen or someone like that, you know, they're, they're up and down, you know, even Grosjean, they're up and down drivers, but every now and then they do something, you go, wow, that was good, you know? And you need, need one of those moments, or two, or three, four. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it that the, the general feeling is that Mercedes and Ferrari, in whichever order they happen to be, are still a step ahead of everyone else. I think Red Bull are definitely closer to Mercedes. They, what was really encouraging was they did eight days at, um, at Barcelona. Um, Can we just Ga- ask, have, have you got any spare room in your head for any more data? Uh, no, I put all of it in an Excel file now. Well, several Excel files, which I tried to talk and Simon Lindsay to. Us. Well, I, I tried, yeah, I sent it to you, exactly. Well, I got well, oh, another email, and it's Karen's got, he's done all his homework. Oh my God. I tried to talk Lazen me through it this morning at breakfast. He just tucked into his bacon roll again. He came up. Sorry, please continue. But, no, I think the, the Red Bull across the eight, eight days, you know, Gasly had a couple of shunts, which meant that we didn't see them do a full race distance. We didn't get to see them do the performance runs, but they didn't have any Honda issues on the eight days, and neither did Toro Rosso, I don't think. So, um, you know, that, that tells you a story that clearly they're in quite a good place in terms of reliability, at least of that. They feel really, you know, the, the mood in the camp is much more buoyant. You know, it's small things, like, you know, they said when, when um, the Gasly had a shunt and they were changing all the stuff on the back end, Previously, they sort of go be told, you know, we need we'll get the turbo off that one, and we get this bit off this yeah. one. We sort of combine this to make yeah. a, the the power unit package for the next day. Whereas Honda went, yeah, just get rid of all that. We'll just stick a new one in of everything. And, yeah. and you know, for them, it's like, wow, you know, they're they're a proper works team now um, with 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 backing. And I think um, I, I I have a bit of a soft spot for that team. I think they're a really good race team. You know, if you take away the whole thing of they're funded by a a drinks company and all the rest of it, and all, all the, that's edgy side of it. 
as a core race team, if you look at the people involved, you know, you've got Adrian, Rob Marshall, Jonathan Wheatley, I, Paul Monet, you know, they're all proper racers. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I think they're, they're a fantastic race team. Really. It's the purest race team in terms of structures. It's like a big F3 team, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. a race team. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, Ferrari, you have to call a race team. Mercedes are a car manufacturer who are in it for the, the kudos that comes with mm. it. But I, I agree, I think Red Bull are there because they love, I mean, the guy doesn't have to sponsor them. He mm. loves racing, you know, it, so they're, they're there for the, the sport, I think. I also think it's quite telling that Red Bull, it's, I mean, it's, it's in a factory on an industrial estate, which is, it's only, the only interest there is building competitive racing cars. They haven't built a, no. a Ponce yeah, like out-of-town palace with swans on a lake outside it. What, what are you talking, who, for, who are you referring example, to? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just an observation. But, I mean, <laughs> but, but the cake's, the cake's good though when you go there for tea. Yeah, the cake, yeah, the, cake, the, cake, the cake might be good. Nice swans. The, the, really? yeah, the, I never saw the swans. But I always just get the impression when you when you go to Red Bull Racing that you know it's everybody is you know there's, yes there's a PR operation marketing drinks but the core business in the factory yeah, right. yeah, all yeah. they care about is good building team. building an effective oh, racing car. Team. A really good team. Yeah, and. Quick yes or no answer across the line. Do we think Red Bull Honda will win the race this year? Yes. I, absolutely, definitely. Yes. Yeah. More than one. More than one. More than okay, one, yeah. okay. Any advance but, on more than one? Well, Four. He was, um, <laughs> that, well, Max was, um, I don't know, last time I looked, Max was eight to one to win the championship. And I thought, oh, go for it. You know, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't rule them out of being a contender, at least for, a, you know, part mm. of the season. Traditionally, of course, they develop massively through the yeah. year. Mm. Um, so they've got that, but they've also got Honda probably got more development in it than the other two. They've and also potentially got the most combustible, you've got the fiery young kid coming in against yeah. Max Verstappen. Uh, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. I, I, th I, think, I think this is the opportunity to build a team around Max. Mm -hmm. I, actually, I actually think okay. that if, you know, if the first half of the season goes Max's way in that inter-team battle, um, I can see Christian and Helmut making the call and saying, right, you know, Pierre, we'll have a go next year maybe, but I can see them. You know, Ma Ma Max is special. There's no yeah. question about yeah. it. He, he is a once-in-a-generation talent. You know, he's, he's one of those that comes along everyone. I mean, the, uh, the first time I saw him was at Poe in the F3. You watch uh, the, the Fosh, Fox chicane, Fosh chicane, Fosh, whatever yeah. it is, yeah. And you watch it through, then you just go, Jesus Christ, he's good. Crash. And, and, and eventually he did. No, he did. About four laps later, he did. But he was, but he was unbelievable. The car control he's got was, and the confidence as a, what, he was 16-year-old, his first year of car racing. He's still a go-kart for F3. It's extraordinary. Um, and he, he's just going to get better, isn't he? Max is like the first example we've seen of nature and nurture all combined because yeah. he's, he's the offspring of two racing yeah. drivers. That's ridiculous. He's yeah. lived in the racing environment and not the outside world. He's yeah. the kid that's been brought up in the circus and it's, yeah. it's like an experiment and that's how good he is. <laughs> we have created a monster. But I mean, he is, he, I mean, the other thing is he is incredibly Prepossessed, he's he knows his own mind. He knows himself yeah. in a way that I've never. I mean, any when he came into Formula, he was only seventeen. I've never met a seventeen-year-old as confident, as mm. clear-headed as, as that. Mm. And and when he was criticised, there was a criticism a couple of years ago when someone came up to him and said that um, Nico, Nicky Lauda has said that you maybe ought to see a 
um, a psychologist or something like that. And he said, he said, quick as a flash, he said, oh, great, we can both go. <laughs> you know, and I, like, who? I, I mean, I would never have been cheeky to Nicky Lauder when I came into F1. You know, he was a god. I would never sing. But he was like that, you know, and, and Villeneuve had a go at him. And he, he sprung back with a pretty biting comment. And, uh, you know, and um, so, you know, don't mess with him. He's, he's sharp as a pin. And also, I, I, the other thing that struck me was how physically strong he was. You know, in, he'd come on a go-cast to F3, and you're normally looking at these sort of scrawny teenagers who could barely hang on a steering wheel for a 25-minute race. And I, I went and shook his hand. I went, he's just not, he's, you know, he's a brute. And I, but <laughs> you, I have, you have to his father. The, the hours that he did in that go-kart, you know, the, the, in the shifter cart, where you just, it's, you know, it is physically very, very demanding. I think Yoss just sent him out there pounding around these circuits for lap after lap after lap, and he's just gotten he's got, so strong. He's got nothing else on his mind either. I talked to Yoss about it, and he's saying that this was when he was at Toro Rosso. And he said, oh, the, he goes over to the simulator Red Bull and spends all day on that, flies home, then gets in his own simulator in his bedroom and does a comparison to see how the two simulators compare. It's comparing simulators. It's the, the, the other thing that he won one of the races last year, I can't remember, and somebody on the podium said, So you're going to party tonight? He said, No, I'm going home because I'm, I'm babysitting for a friend or something. And, you know, he's already got to the point where he kind of goes, I, I, this is exhausting enough, and I know I need to keep my energy, and I'm not just going to piss it yeah. away. Or but I think there were, there, were two, there were two races for me that stood out that told me he's now reaching a level of maturity where he's ready to be a championship contender if the car's ready. Because early on in the season, they were, he was, was all, all over the place. shop. But then he had, that, he had a bit of a switch when we got to Canada, I remember watching FP1 at the last chicane. I like going there in the first free practice because you start to see it's a green track, you've got the big curbs, you know, who are the drivers who are already attacking the curbs, getting close to the wall. And I thought, this would be good to watch Max through here. But there was a shift. I, I think that weekend he suddenly realized I can drive at 90%, not shunt, and I can still beat Daniel by three tenths and get on the podium. Hang on a second, this is actually yeah. quite good. Um, <laughs> but as you get later on, I thought Singapore. There were a couple of moments there where he, you know, went down the straight towards turn seven, and he had Seb alongside him on lap one. And I think the earlier version of Max would have take, lost his yeah, front yeah, wing. Yeah. And instead, he backed out of the fight. Seb got in front. Yeah. And then when it came to the pit stop, Ferrari blinked first. They pitted. Yeah. You know, he strategically squeezed Seb out. And again, didn't bang wheels, which I thought was crucial, and, and got it done. And then Mexico, where he had the engine braking issue in qualifying, but then blitzed Daniel off the start. And he pulled a pit stop. I know Daniel's car broke down in the race, but Max had already made a pit stop on him. He made 25 seconds on Daniel in the same car. And you go, that's pretty special, really. Mm. So, yeah, that to me was two races that stood out. And then we got to Brazil and all the hell broke loose. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that was a new sign of maturity there. You just mentioned Daniel. Mm. I mean, quite often you see internet sites speculating driver X is going here, there, or wherever. The Daniel to Renault thing seemed to come completely out of left field. It's almost like a world champion going to Arrows. Yeah, yeah no, 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 Nearly as surprising. <laughs> oh, they, I would have preferred to go to Renault, actually. <laughs> You, you yeah. did nearly win a race in an Arrows, which would have been the biggest yes, upset ever. Great. Some consolation, wasn't Ar Arrows it? Arrows I mean, Yamaha. Uh, nearly winning a race. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> was, uh, 
that was rather out of my hands. This was a decision that uh, Daniel mm. took on the yeah. plane to California, <laughs> yeah. I think. He must what, 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 do you, what, what do you all make? I mean, can, can you see his logic, just trying to get away from Verstappen to sort of rebuild, you know, build, build a team around himself, or it's not going to be easy with Hulkenberg alongside it? I can a little bit, but I think it was it's not just logic. I think it was also emotion. Um, it, it had been his team, and Max came along and took it off him. So there was an element of that. Um, but also, uh, I asked him, the Renault launch, said, how big a part did Baku play in the fallout from that? And he said it did. It, it definitely played its part. He says, because we were assigned in public equal blame for what I didn't feel was a, an equal blame incident. And Max made the second move. And I think as a 29-year-old being treated like a naughty school kid for something that he hadn't done anyway, he'd just been racing as far as he was concerned, probably made him think, I need to get out of here. I need to you know, to do something on my own because that was the first opportunity that he'd had ever to where he, it was in his hands, where he went next. Because prior to that, his whole career had been a Red Bull front and they had the way the options were. And this is the first time, and I think he just it was partly a time of, of his life decision because he's probably thinking, even if the Honda comes good, and he, he may, at the time he made that decision, that was a bit of a stretch to think that the Honda might come good. Um, I think he was thinking, even if it comes good, I've got, I've got Max in that team that seems to be centered around him. So it's maybe time. It's maybe time to move. I agree with everything Mark said. I think that, that you know he he did effectively walk away from the battle in some ways. I think, but as a driver, you'd still, I don't know, I'd still you'd rather be a number two in a top team. Than a number one in a midfield. I mean, you know, unless you, get you haven't the, accepted it. Sorry. Unless, unless you haven't accepted yeah. it, you're not ready could, to accept yeah. it. Yeah, because you, you know, if you're in a top team, you'd still win the odd Grand Prix, and there could be a year where the car suits you better than <laughs> your teammate, and then you become the, the championship contender. I, I don't know. It's it's a really difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how many drivers, and you probably know this more than I do. How many drivers would have walked have walked away from a top three team um, that hasn't won a race since 2012, really, in its various names. Yeah. Um, so it hasn't won a race in five years, and, has, and yeah. it's worked out for them. It's Emerson not... Fittipaldi, Nicky Lauda. I think, I think the golden rule in, in F1 is you know, if you can be in a car that can, or a team that can win a race, you, you need to be there. And if it's an uncomfortable relationship or it's an uncomfortable situation, you need to somehow tough it out. Um, you know, um, because winning is a wonderful panacea. You know, it'll happen. You'll win a race, and um, you know things can change. I mean, look at Theresa May; she's still there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> doesn't matter how bad it gets, she's still there. You know. <laughs> this is why you should follow him on social media. <laughs> Damon's randomness is brilliant, utterly brilliant. If we could move on to Amber Rudd. Um, <laughs> Actually, he tweeted about her the other day. Don't, don't. We're not going. So, right. These are motorsport fans. We're not talking about the other things. You started it. Um, Nico no, Hulkenberg, brilliant junior career, won at every single level, gets into Formula One, pole position first season, still hasn't had a podium. How do you think he's going to stack up against Danny? I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for him, isn't it? Because... Mm. 
you know, Renault have paid a fortune to bring in this A-lister from a, from a top team alongside him, who is expected to be the number one in that team and lead, lead Renault back to sort of championship success one day. Um, from Nico's standpoint, he's well entrenched in there. He, he knows the team. They know him. They respect each other very well. Uh, if he beats Daniel, his stock just goes up. And if he doesn't, then, well, he, he was anyway in some way meant to be the, the, the number two, I think. How, how much do you think the weight thing, has the, the rule changes helped it? It's uh, probably going to help him because yeah. obviously He now gets how much of a, a, a gain? Because well, he was a weighty he would, driver. And, and, and I know for a fact that, I mean, I, I did talk with Adrian about Nico Hulkenberg once and he just said he, he wouldn't put him in the car, he's too heavy. And it's all, it's all high up and bulk. And it's high. high. You know, yeah, and yeah. so that's his, it, it sounds unbelievable, I know, but it, you know, these small differences uh, will result in, in increased lap time. And, he, and so, but now he's got a benefit because they've changed yeah. the rules about it's weight. Go, it's it's going to help, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's, there's no question. It's, it, it's, it's a bit strange that it's taken so long to come in in some way, hasn't it? I mean, I think, am, am I right in saying, even back in the day, Mansell against Prost, oh, ridiculous. the weight oh, wasn't included, was it? If you no, actually... No, that's right. Yeah, there was you know, no... There was and no, it's, you know, the yeah. fact that, the, first of all, that was included, and now, now, now we're in a very different sport. We're into marginal gains. So actually, the driver plus C, these two, three kilos make a big difference. Mansell versus Prost must have been 10, 15 I, I, kilos. I'm actually sad enough that I did the weight calculations in oh, there you go. <laughs> to do the Mansell Prost comparison of yeah. Ferrari in 1990, and Mansell was half a second faster. He had yeah. to be half a second faster to do the same lap, to do the same lap time as, yeah. as, as, yeah. as Alain Prost. So, so that, they had the same system now. Yeah. I mean, offset a bit of that because Mansell's yeah. upper body strength without power steering up probably bought him some Maybe. time as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Totally was sad. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, in summary, back to Huckerberg, I think, I think it's a big year for him. I think it's great. And, and his junior career was, was stellar. Was stellar. He won everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember racing against him in, in 2009 in GP2. And it was the only, it was only the second time in my sort of junior formula career that I, I followed somebody on time. He was at the Nürburgring. He passed me in his wet race in Nürburgring. And I thought, yeah, you're, you're seriously good. Uh, you know. And the previous one was Lewis Hamilton. I remember Brands Hatch following him in qualifying in the F3. And, you know, the angles that he had this car around the back of those two quick corners at, at Brands GP circuit. Uh, it's just confidence. It was his first F3 weekend. He'd come from Formula Renault. He ended up unconscious, though, didn't he? And he ended up unconscious <laughs> in the race, so it did bite him. But you just watch the angles of the guy. He'd flick this car in, and I just thought, that is incredible. Um, but, yeah, I... I really rate Hulkenberg. I think the shine went off him a little bit in those Force India years, didn't he? Because he ended up behind Perez. And any time there was a low-hanging fruit, yeah. Perez ended up with the podium. And Nico Baku, he seemed to have a, a shunt every time and he, when, yeah. when there was a chance of a podium and stuff. But it, it seems a little bit unfair in some ways, though, because I mean, he's clearly a very quick driver. And one yeah. of the conditions of the modern age is that you have to be able to nurse tyres. And I just get the impression with Nico sometimes that he's, he's just yeah. got his natural vim. He's unable to kind of contain himself yeah, and, and, and look where, after the Perez. That's where Perez, Perez was, was good at. Yeah. So good at. So, yeah, that was the difference. And it wasn't a difference in pace. It was a difference in how they managed the tyres throughout a race. Um, my personal view is, you know, the tyres are too much that way, I think. Um, I, I don't know how different it's going to be this year. The tyres have changed a little bit. The cars have changed a little bit. But there were quite a few races last year where the pace was managed quite, had to be managed quite heavily because of the tyres. Um, I don't think that's a great thing. And I, uh, I would much prefer that you could push all the time from start to finish. And then you'd, you'd actually see who was 
the best at driving rather than the best at managing an event. I have to say that I think Damon, your model, not winning any junior championships at all, and then mm. just, just winning that one title, no. has, been better, no. has been better so far. I, no, <laughs> I, won, better so I far. won the champion of brands, motorcycles. That was a bike, it was a yeah, bike. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I hadn't forgotten yeah, that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I still think your model half is half as many than, wheels. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> less tarp, less Twice as much talent required. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's not get into an argument about bikes versus cars, because I think... But, um, yeah, so what your point was, what? No, just... <laughs> I think, I think your, your model to delay winning titles in cars yeah. and, until the end is a, is a much better yeah, system. Well, there's only one to win, isn't there? You know, yeah. F1 World Championship, you know, it's... Uh, why bother winning I, Why bother with all those F3 yeah. championships <laughs> and stuff? Nobody really remembers them, yeah. you know. <laughs> Smarty pants, aren't <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to a team that I think possibly most effective last year in terms for points per pound, Haas. How would you guys, I mean, their, their, their development model basically get Delara to build them a car, Ferrari mm. to supply most of the bits underneath the car. It's, I know a lot of teams are sniffy about that. Mm. But I mean, how, how do you, I mean, how do you, they've made fantastic progress since they came yeah. in three years ago. How do you, how do you assess them? The thing is, you know, back, back in the day, people could go and buy a, a Lotus when Damon's father used to race, you know, they could buy a Lotus, buy a DFB, hey presto, we've got a Formula One team. I mean, you know, Frank Williams started his team by buying a Di Tommaso, wasn't it? It was a Brabham before that. Brabham, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's a similar thing. So, yes, F1 has changed and, you know, this and the other, but ultimately, this argument about Haas not being part of the DNA of F1, I don't buy that, because you can argue anything being the DNA of F1, really. There's, you know, you could sit here for hours on that. I think ultimately, Gunther Steiner has been very smart in the way he's done it. He's, he's seen a loophole. The, the regulations are clear about what they can and can't do in terms of te technical partnerships. I think he's been very opportunistic and he's been smart and he went and did the deal with Ferrari and Delara. And, and you know, they, within two years, they were able to produce the fourth fastest car on the grid. They had reliability issues and the drivers shunted a lot in lap one and all that. But, when you look at the, the averages, they had the fourth fastest car Indeed. on the grid last year. Yeah. And, and, and in testing last week, from what I saw, arguably, I, I put money on them being the fourth fastest car in Melbourne next weekend. So um, so what, what is their deal, Karen? Because I don't quite understand. They get, they get help, they technical get, so help from... They use the Ferrari wind tunnel. The car is built by Delara. The, the model is developed in the Ferrari wind tunnel with aerodynamicists seconded from Ferrari, yeah. but not on Ferrari's own program. They then complete the car and they hand it over to the to Lara to build. And then it, those guys then go back to work. For uh, but the, the powertrain as well, they get all of the, yeah, you know, obviously it, the entire yeah. engine gearbox, so cooling systems, same, rear suspension, you know, all of that. the same as Racing Point with Mercedes. They've got no option to do it, yeah. Yeah, Red Bull, and Red Bull yeah. yeah. But they, you know, they, they push the envelope. Yeah. But it's not outside the regs. It's, no. it's, the, the, it's the, the perfectly legal. They yeah. don't have to design the car and uh, they they don't have to build it. Yeah. So they, they can operate they just on operate less money. A, yeah, they operate as a race team. So they're 200, 220 people. 220, I think it is now. And the, the next small... So the thing is, a team like out. that, if you, if you had that as a model, I mean, basically everyone's copying the leader, aren't they? They're following the leader. Mm -hmm. uh, you buy from, you'd buy from the best. It means they can never around. win. That's they're right. never going to beat Ferrari. That's but right. as a pound, to come back to Simon's original question about pound for pound, mm. 
by spending less money than a McLaren or a Williams or a or Renault even, yeah. they, they're finishing ahead. So, you know, if you if if you look at it as a business model, yeah, for what you're spending versus what you get back in the prize money and sponsorship and all that, yeah, it, it it's a it's a more viable business model, really. Um, which really kind of renders people like Williams and McLaren, you know, uh, that they are well, they're, they're carrying a massive burden, aren't they? They're in a weird place, aren't they? Because yeah. they're the only two. I think, two I think that's something that they're looking at for the, the regulation for 2021 onwards. I think mm. they're looking at just bringing that, bring it a bit, a little bit back from the house model. It's, it's felt to be a bit too extreme. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And what about the drivers? Drivers. I, I always feel that in a parallel universe somewhere, Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen are bare knuckle fighters. Because I mean, they, they are they are both. I mean, neither, neither of them takes any nonsense. Well, he seems to get in the way a lot of free practice, doesn't he, Kevin? A lot. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, to me, looks like somebody looking for a fight all, 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 all the time. And as soon as practice starts, he wants to fight. Um, and he's, he's, very, he's very tough in battles. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to go wheel to wheel with him. He'll, he will just bang you out of the way. You not even think about it. Um, but I don't think he's as quick as Roman. Roman, at his peak, is brilliantly fast. But, but those three words are the key, though, isn't it? Yeah. At his peak, but you, yeah. you just don't know what Roman you're going to get. You might get the idiot, what, you know, <laughs> and then <laughs> next time you've got, you know. But he's had this. He's gone and seen. It's been a, seen as a sports psychologist, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's very open. But about he did that, that in the Renault days as well. Yeah, he's, or the, he's, or the, or well, the he's never stopped doing that since. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, I don't think it's a new thing. It's just it seems to have become <laughs> a story of the winter. But, but he seemed to be uh, more consistent last year, towards the end of last, the end of the season. The, the when second he made half. the breakthrough, yeah. but I mean, yeah. in the first half. After Ricard, he was He was no. I mean, Haas were actively. Looking to replace yeah, him, wasn't he? I, I thought he at, lost at the, the British Grand Prix. I thought he yeah. was gone. Yeah, but he he mm. gathered. I think the score after Ricard was something like eight-one mm. in Magnussen favour. But by the end of the season, it had gone into um, yeah. Grosjean's favour. Now, when they're both when they're both having a good weekend, Roman's easily yeah. quicker. He's got a couple of tenths. Yeah, he's got a very beautiful wife as well. He's also also doing something right. <laughs> More randomness. Listen, I, I'm just saying. Come on. He, he tweeted a picture of his wife today, oh, yeah. that's all. That's, yeah. With clothes on and everything. Yeah. I think you could follow that up. Should we go? <laughs> anyway. Basic question What the hell's going on at Williams? Um, it's, they've been getting through technical. Technical directors, like most people, get through cornflakes. I mean, they're packets of cornflakes. It's changing all the time, and they've gone from being third in the Constructors' World Championship in 2015 mm. to last now. It's, it's yeah. been a very rapid descent. It would never have happened in Frank Williams and Patrick Head's day. What's happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's a shambles. It is yeah. a shambles. Um, and ultimately, the... the, the it, it is a management problem, and the book does stop there. Ultimately, um, they, there's, a, I think, a refusal to accept that they're no longer a top team in the sense that they are still structured uh, like a top team in terms of the engineering facilities that they have. So they, they're running massively overstaffed for the level of success that they can have, and so. 
because there's a refusal to accept that, I think the engineering people maybe haven't been given uh, choice on decisions that, that should have been made. Um, so a very, very tough decision because these are people's livelihoods and it's, it's a very proud uh, you know, engineering-centered team. Um, and that's why ultimately I say it is a, a management um, problem and probably a management failing. Um, and it's been exacerbated by when the, um, when the regulations changed, it, it, it brought out a weakness that hadn't been identified previously, but which had sort of been covered up in, in terms of how the car worked. And they discovered last year how much they didn't know and that this stuff had been going on that they hadn't realised, but it wasn't so important with the old regulations than was with this, and um, this, they're in a similar place now. Um, um, Robert's saying the car's not actually as bad as last year's in terms of how it drives, and that it is, you, you sort of you got, you drive, drive it to the balance of the car, but it's just drastically lacking in downforce, and, and, and the gap, the gap between, in, in Barcelona, between where they were and the Penelope car was probably as big or bigger than the gap between the penultimate car and the fastest car. Mm. That's how far off they are. It must, I mean, you guys must find it. I mean, you won the world title with Williams. You've got a strong relationship with Williams. You're the heritage driver, drive all the museum cars and demonstrations and stuff. You must both find it desperately sad to see what's happened. It is sad. I mean, it is really sad. And I think it's sad for Formula One. For me, you know, I grew up in an era where, in an era where it was... Williams, Ferrari, McLaren, they were your top three, you know, I, the, the first ever race broadcast in India live was the 93 Spanish Grand Prix, which he was in, and, you know, that, for me, they were the dominant teams, and He's my heroes are driving those cars. Hmm? He's thinking about Grosjean's wife, he's always <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I was, I, I was just trying to remember 1993, I was thinking. <laughs> you were yeah. second and broke down. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the, the the car, you know, it, it is sad, and I think it's important for F1 for McLaren and Williams to be successful. They've got great fan bases around the world. I think they've got great history, and so yeah, it is sad. Um, what the answer is, what the solution is, I think it's multi-layered, isn't it? I think what what is really upsetting about the current situation is that you could have, you know, you've, it's it's you can see this coming. You could have seen it coming ages ago. It's, they've gone off the rails. They, ref, they refuse to acknowledge that the world has moved on, and they don't know what to do about it. They've got they've got a what has to be now. They have to look at their management and say, okay, well, what are we not seeing here? What are we not getting? We're not getting something. We're missing a, a bit of the, of the picture. And um, and I think a lot of us have looked at Williams and gone, okay, well, you're going in a you're taking the wrong path, and it's been going that way for years. And, and I think that um, year after year, and I don't know how they're going to carry on with, with cars that don't compete. And it's a real shame that they've kind of reached this nadir <coughs> right now, because the two potentially fantastic stories. Mm. I mean, mm. George Russell is one of the most promising young British drivers we've had in a very long while. Mm. Brilliant mm. in F2 last year. Yeah. But to my mind, by far the outstanding performer in F2 last year. Mm -hmm. And Robert, I mean, who was a genius and his first Formula One career, the accident, long layoff. It's one of the most romantic and uplifting comebacks mm. stories. 
of all time in Formula One. Mm -hmm. And it's all going to be kind of mm. lost it is. in, 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 in yeah. the shadows somewhere. I mean, and also I think turnarounds are achievable in a short space of time. Uh, if, it's, if it's done in the right way with a level of um, you know, a strong top-level management decision. I, I look at Sauber. You know, they, they went from being, you know, the, the, the car in 2016 was this big, bulky, overweight, you know, absolutely dead last car. Sounds a bit like me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, Fred, Fred Vasseur has gone in there and gone, right, that Honda contract we signed, like, tear that up. We're not ready for it. We can't, we can't cope with that. We can't make the gearbox for it. We can't do that. Right, Ferrari, let's talk. What deal can we do? You know, he's gone in there. And Brazil last year, they genuinely had the fourth fastest car. Yeah. They qualified seventh and eighth. They've got, now they've got Kimi in there. They've got a top, you know, a top driver who, I think Ferrari did the right decision to replace him with Leclerc. But equally, I think Sauber benefit hugely from a guy who's mm -hmm. finished on podiums, you know, had a pole position and won a race last year. He's come with a great deal of top level experience. So, yeah. you know, turnarounds turn around, turn are possible in a short mm -hmm. space of time, but it's, it's off on the top, doesn't it? I was going to say Vassar's a racer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he's come up through the whole racing. He understands what, you know, what makes what makes a team work. And he's know? hard as well. Like he's, he yeah. goes in there yeah. and, and he he's, he's takes no prisoners. You know, I've known Fred for years when he was running his ART team, and he's he's uh, he's a tough cookie. Mm. But yeah, yeah, maybe so that's that's what you need in F1. And that's what you know, with Williams, you know, Frank and Patrick were racers. And, and, and they, you know, sadly they've got, they got old and they, they've moved on and stuff. And it needs, it needs someone back in there. And I mean, I think Zach Brown is a bit of a racer as well. You know, he's put a bit of the zip back into. I think Seidel yeah. would be good. Andrea Seidel, who they've hired from Porsche. Mm. He, you know, Weber talks very highly of him from the days they had a Porsche. Um, uh, so I think he'd, he'd be good for McLaren. <coughs> you, well, you brought the subject up. I mean, do, do you see McLaren turning the corner Heading back in the right direction. I mean, clearly, they're not going to be running right at the front this year. But mm. do you see them moving back in the right direction the season ahead? Um, I think let's wait and see. They're, they're, their testing runs seem to confuse a little bit. You know, there's there's a lot mm -hmm. of good headlines, but when you start to dig through, you kind of go, well, they're in the midfield battle. I don't. I think the back end of last year, they'd sort of given up they, on that they'd car. Fallen away they'd, from it. You know, there were races where they were behind Williams, in fact, yeah. and I think with with the genius of Fernando Alonso <laughs> behind yeah. the wheel. Um, you know they're going to be missing Alonso on a Sunday in particular. You know that's that's we all three are. tenths, isn't it? I thought it was, I mean, that's it was great. three tenths on a Sunday and great team radio entertainment mm. and all this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, th I think McLaren will miss will miss that relentless push they get got from Fernando on a Sunday. I think we'll be back to respectability. Yeah, just you know midfield solid performances did to, to give a, a foundation, and you've got. Um, Andres Seidel coming in from Barcelona, I think, and you've got new technical director, James Key, who we're expecting to see from Bahrain onwards. So they're the new people to take it forward so that really they're in a holding pattern and it's just to stop them getting on that cycle to, that Williams have been in for a while. Um, it's still quite top. You know, I, I look at it and, and from the outside, you look at the structures of, mm. of, and they still look quite top heavy. You know, you look at, you look at Red Bull and Mercedes, or, or Ferrari, for example, you know, you've got, you got Toto sitting there and you've got James Allison heading the technical side, but it's basically there's one bloke, you know, Nicky, unfortunately, is unwell at the moment, but he's more a consultant. Same with Red Bull, you've got Helmut and Christian, um, but then Adrian and his technical team. But at McLaren, you've got Zach, Gilles, Jonathan Neal, now Andreas Seidel, 
you sort of got four four people up at the top, and so it's it's a very different structure in some way. It's always been a bit like that, McLaren, even when mm. it was successful, hasn't it? It always had big structures and matrix management, and um, but yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I I don't think that's going to spoil. I think Zach's probably going to be a bit more hands off and mm. concentrate on getting them in, you know, into America and all that. But um, and I think it'll be Seidel's job to run it from you know, day to day mm. running. Do you think Carlos Sainz is the right kind of driver to lead the McLaren recovery? I mean, he's shown great flashes of promise from time to time, but Red Bull's got lots of data and seem, didn't seem bothered about letting him go. I, he's not. I don't think he's a driver of, of um, Alonso's stature, obviously. Um, but he's he's a very quick driver and he's capable of some very very impressive performances and I think for a team at the level that they're at they they were over endowed last year you could you they couldn't reasonably have expected to have somebody as good as Alonso it was a bonus that they did but they, they finished think. sixth in the constructors championship with, with, with the, the, worst, with the ninth fastest car. car yeah exactly and, and that was Alonso yeah when was the difference a, when was the last time McLaren didn't have a world champion in their team didn't yeah uh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> well, it's because there was a time when. Um, well, Montoya and Kimi, I suppose, because Kimi hadn't yet won no, it at that he, point. No, but he was, a future, he was a future world champion, wasn't yeah, he? Well, yeah, we didn't know that then. No, that's we true. That's true, that's true. It does. It's a valid argument, yeah. It yeah. doesn't work like that. You've got. <laughs> I, I mean, so there you go. Kimi, Kimi, and. Uh, Kimi, and. Uh, who was it? Um, oh, no, no. Well, then, if you look at that, then actually, I suppose yeah. Lewis. Lewis well, he became Lewis world champion in 2008. Yeah. No, but. The, yeah, yeah. So Lewis and Coverline. Yeah, it was 2008, mm. wasn't it? Heike. There you go. That's your answer. So, yeah, a decade. But the last time they had a driver who wouldn't become world champion at okay, some point. Yeah, yeah it's, okay. It's probably it's back going... in the early 80s. But they were. They, they, what's, they... He in, what's he in the Cheseris? Maybe? I don't know. Mm. It could be. My okay. point being that <laughs> neither, neither Carlos Sainz or, or, or Lando Norris are world champions. So, so you know, that, the power they have, the influence they have as drivers in the team is not quite as great as, as it was. When your argument's going to be destroyed if Lando Norris wins a world championship. It, it is, yes, it is, absolutely. Ten yeah, years' yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a good point well made. Then you're going to be embarrassed for now. Yes, I will, yeah. And, and, and that, that'll be on YouTube, won't it? So I'll be, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> We haven't got um, one thing. I, I completely hashed up the introduction by not mentioning that we're having a we're gabbling for about an hour or so. Then we're having a Q and A, so it'll be your turn to ask sensible questions. Um, and that that's going to be coming up in three or four minutes. So I'll, we've got time for a bit more first. Um, Alfa Romeo. Does a does does Kimi still belong in F1? And, and how's that thing going to work this year? Do you think? I think I would give my opinion on that. I, th I think he he deserves to be in F1. I think Alfa yeah. will benefit from it. And he's got like a whole new bounce in his step. I saw Fred at the test in Barcelona, and he said it's been brilliant. He says, you know, Kimmy, yeah. Kimmy puts his wife and kids in the car and drives around the factory from his house. It's only, you know, down the road, and he's wandering around the factory, and he, he's, he's, he's suddenly discovered this whole new mojo motivation. Um, in fact, Giovinazzi was telling me as well, he says it's, it's unbelievable how, how you know, much he's pushing the team and he's really been proactive in trying to drive the team forward. I think they're all a bit surprised really, but um, he, he's relishing this role and you know, they look at him as a clear number one and, yeah. and he's, he's relishing it. I think he'd come down a little bit from the level where he was a, you know, a, a world championship level of driver. I, don't, I think Ferrari you know, could only use him as a, a support driver. So in that sense, 
the, yeah, it was time. But he's still capable of great performances, and we mm. saw that last year a few times. Um, and for a team of you know alphas level that's pushing to go further, he's, he's fantastic. And he's as Karun said, he's he's reinvigorated and he's just happy. He's enjoying himself. He was he, he went off on the the very first lap of testing, um, ended up in the gravel, and yeah, all right, it's a bit embarrassing, but it's just but he was just laughing and joking about it. The team were laughing and joking. Everybody was just, yeah. it's, it's just, a, he'd said through, he'd got on the radio, he said, oh, turn two's a bit slippery. And then, and then he, <laughs> he got on, and then he said, oh, turn, turn, turn four. I nearly went off. And then he said, turn five, oh, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think we'll, we'll ever see that devastating no. Kimi of 2003-4-5, where, where I genuinely think he was the fastest yeah, guy over one lap in Formula yeah, 1. I think so. He was unbelievable at that time. But he's, he won that race in Austin. You know, he he genuinely... With his decisions. With his decisions on how to... You know, yeah. I think, I think a, an off-day Kimi, there was this phase when Lewis was catching him where he would have thought, oh, I'll just let him go. Yeah. But actually, he held Lewis back. He made no. sure Lewis didn't gain that four or five seconds. That yeah. paid dividends. That you know, he, he really thought about yeah. that race. And he actually and, overruled and he won, the team on that. He overruled the team, yeah. He, he, right he won that yeah, race. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that, that shows that on his day... Yeah. He's, he's still got the magic. Last, last question from me for now. Just a couple of quick points. We haven't mentioned Force Canada or Racing Point or whatever they're called. <laughs> and, um, or, or indeed Toro Rosso, the team that's hired two of its drivers it previously sacked. Um, to replace the driver that they previously sacked twice. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's made more comes, comebacks? Daniel, um, Daniel Kvyat or Nigel Mansell in F1? It's the same, I think they're drawing yeah. at the moment. <laughs> draw. But, I mean... Financial stability now, presumably for Racing Point, and um, how? I mean, is Kvyat a good thing? How's Alex Albon looking? Just a couple of quick words. I thought Albon looked fantastic, actually, yeah. uh, in testing for um, for a rookie. Just he did, he was quick, he was consistent. He just took it all in his stride. I thought he looked uh, remarkable. Um, Kvyat is a can be devastatingly vast. He's got a lot of talent. He just he collapsed under the. The mental pressure of being thrust in that Red Bull role, and it didn't really recover when he went back mm. to Toro Rosso. So he's got he's got a second chance. So let's see. He's got it in him, but whether he can get access to it, mm. open. Yeah, um, no, I, I really rate Albon. He sort of flies under the radar a little bit, but um, he was on he was on pole position at my charity karting event last year, <laughs> uh, and then I black flagged him for pissing <laughs> too many people off. But. Uh, um, he, he, he's, I think he's a good driver. I mean, I, I know Jody Eggington, their new technical director, quite well from our time at, at Caterham Lotus. And he was saying that in the first week, he was, it was all a bit deer in headlights and he's quite green. And I think as the test went on, he realized that you've got to ask and you, you, you've got to say what you want. And you've got to complain. You've got to say, look, this throttle map's not working for me. Could I have a different shape and you know could I have this in engine break you know you've got to, you've got to be a little bit demanding without being a, a pain in the ass and I think he, he's 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 still playing the not playing but he's, he's trying he's, to find the right balance yeah he's yeah. still he's still a bit too nice and too it's just all a bit um, new and he's a bit green I think but you know I think uh, it'll 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 shake out, and the team team are really. I think Mark touched on. He was very impressive in the long runs and testing. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he did this um, 
race him where his it was extraordinary. Everyone's having sort of two, three seconds of tire dig, mm. and he did his best lap, sort of two laps to go on a 23 lap stint. And you go, well, he wasn't going happened. slowly either. It was uh, yeah, he was a good pace. Yeah. So you sort of look at it and go, okay, he's he, he's he's got something there. Right, that's a positive note on which to end this part of the uh, evening. But uh, we have a couple of roving mics. There's one over there. And one over there. Could you please raise a hand if you have a question for anyone? It's one there. Oh, no, we'll start, start over there. Start there, you're there now. <laughs> I'd like to ask the panel about circuits, if I may, and if, if you had the opportunity to scratch any venue from the calendar, which race would it be? And if you'd like to offer up an alternative, I'd be very interested to hear that too. Thought mm. <laughs> um, I think as a, as a track, it's a bit, it's just never produces good racing. It's a dull one-stopper. Um, we had that one moment with Lewis and Seb coming out of the pits last year, but I think as a layout, it's not, it's not great. Um, which one would you put back? Have a second race at Interlagos. That's good. Mm? Have a second race at Interlagos. One yeah, that's good. Yeah. Nasty, was, yeah. Long Beach. Um, I yeah, think Long, Long Beach. Beach. Yeah. Mm. But I don't know how about overtaking a Long Beach, though. I don't care. I just want to go Long Beach. <laughs> 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 um, uh, let me have a think and come back to you. But uh, I think, yeah. For me, um, I, I, not, I, I wouldn't want to lose Barcelona because it's a great venue, but I don't like the track. I yeah, think it's I one of the dullest mm. tracks we go to. Yeah. And it, call, it creates very boring racing because of the long corners and the reliance on downforce to do a lap time. So everyone just spreads out. They can't get close. <laughs> they can't race. So, and, and they ruined it by taking out that last corner. I know it was dangerous, but it was... Quite a good corner. Mm. Sport's supposed to be dangerous, isn't it? Well, it's to not degree. supposed to be dangerous. It is, it is, there is a risk to it. There is risk hazards. Yeah. There's a question, gentlemen, there in the black, black t shirt. I should probably say I should reinstate the Indian Grand Prix, really, yeah. shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> um, I've got a question regarding the, <clears throat> uh, the over the eight years, uh, days of testing. Uh, the the Mercedes, certainly on the exterior, changed greatly um, with, I think, in week two, from mm. one thing that I read about, a thousand extra parts being put on the car, which were obviously unable to be developed in such a short time, uh, you know, in washing to out washing, front wings, etc. Do you think that that shows a uncertainty in the design of their car, or is it that they are very certain about what they're doing and they're trying different things and they're not too worried about the lap times at this point? It, it was a pre-planned thing. So the, what they, they had a launch spec car and what was originally going to be a Melbourne upgrade. And so everything's determined by where you were at in the winter. And they decided that the launch car and the test car would be wherever they were at in the tunnel by the end of November. They would build that up and then they would continue working in the wind tunnel for a further, you know, further few weeks to give them good, you know, a big, big performance upgrade. That was the idea. And they finished that ahead of schedule. So instead of debuting at Melbourne, it debuted in the second week of testing. The, the lead times on these things are so long. It wouldn't have been made over the weekend. You know, the so that was the, the, first, the first week car was just the safe spec. And the second week was pretty much what they will race at Melbourne. Okay, some more. Oh, Hello. I've <laughs> oh, got a question for you. 
Um, you know, with the increasing importance of simulators nowadays, there's yep. a couple of questions I'd like to know. One is how much are they used? How many hours are made, played out on a simulator? And do they more, use more than one driver to do that stuff? And do you see a pathway into Formula One for people from the gaming industry? Kids at home who are particularly skillful, you know, they've got ratios like they're 2,000th in the world and they get them up to 13th in the world and all this stuff. And the kids at home can see that because they're doing the same laps, etc., carving fractions of a second off. Surely that's a transferable skill. You might be able to get people into a car who can do that stuff. I think the simulators have come on a hell of a lot. Um, you know, McLaren were the first ones to invest in it in the early 2000s. Uh, and they, I mean, I, I remember in 2007, when I was on the Red Bull Junior program, um, Christian called me and said, we're giving you your first F1 test at the end of the year, Barcelona, where you've got to come and do some days in the sim. And it was the very first sim that they were building. It was on this sort of tripod leg on this, with, a, with a capsule. And I got in it, and I, I just got so ill. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And, you know, so I did three laps. I was like, oh, just, just getting dizzy and motion sickness. And... I just was really struggling to do the three or four laps, so I very sheepishly had to walk back up to Christian's office and go, I'm really sorry, I'm not, I'm not able to do the sim thing because, you know, it's, it's just, you know, could I please still have my test in a couple <laughs> of weeks? And, um, and he just started, started laughing. I was a bit confused, not the reaction I was expecting. Uh, and he said, yeah, don't worry, Mark threw up in it last week, Weber and DC <laughs> the rest of it. And he said, he said Adrian's thrown up in it, and, um, and DC won't get in it. So, uh, so, but basically, Boemi was the only one who could get, Boemi could do days in this thing. I, I don't know how, he didn't have motion sick, it was bizarre. But um, nowadays, they're running it, you know, on a race weekend, they're running it overnight. It's, um, you know, they've got multiple drivers. I think Ferrari have got four different four, drivers, yeah. including Hartley now doing it, um, you know, Anthony Davidson's doing a lot at Mercedes amongst other people, so they, they use them a hell of a lot. It's a great engineering tool. I mean, I was lucky. I, 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 I've been in various simulators, including the new, uh, the, uh, the newer McLaren ones and the Red Bull ones and stuff, and I, I always saw that a great engineering tool. You know, you could do, you could do 0.25% of weight distribution shift, and you could feel that in the balance of the car, and you could feel a lap time difference. You could change the engine braking or the torque map, you know, by one click on the steering wheel and you feel that difference. And it was quite good for setup optimization and stuff. As a driver to learn the track, I think it saved you the first five laps of FP1, maybe, um, not, not much beyond that. Uh, because, I, and ultimately I think there's no fear factor. Um, you know, I think, so that's where- You say fear or feel? Feel, okay. and, and, and to some extent feel, you know, yeah. I think the, the feel of oversteer, they still haven't, fully being able to replicate, for example, in a, in a sim, I think. Also, um, you can't get the sustained G on you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, McLaren, um, and I think a lot of others now have the G-loader on the helmet. I would have hated to be the test dummy for that. Can you imagine when they go, we're just going to connect this thing to your head, and we're testing it. <laughs> Hope it doesn't snap your head off. But uh, it works well. <laughs> but it does work. You know, you do feel the G-force. Um, but... I, I was very involved. I ran the GT Academy program in India, actually, Nissan's program. I don't know if you know about the Gamer to Racer thing, where they took um, kids who were um, playing Gran Turismo, the video game, and then went all the way to Le Mans. And, um, you know, the, the, the one, the, the Welsh kid they found here, Jan Mardenborough, he's, he's really good. You know, he's now more a racing driver than a gamer. 
But when you look at his performances in Super Formula in, in, Jap you know, in Japan or in, in Super GT and stuff, he's right up there. He was, you know, he was, as, he was as quick as Jensen was at some races um, last year. So I think there is a part, and his family have saved themselves hundreds of thousands of pounds of karting budget, <laughs> you know, by buy, buying a PlayStation and a, and a steering set for a couple of grand. I get it, it's still 2,000 pounds, which I wouldn't spend on a gaming pod, but it's still infinitely cheaper than 250,000 of European karting. So I think there's, there is an argument for, for the gamer to racer model, especially if the games are getting more realistic and the, the simulators are getting more realistic. But I, I still think they need to have an element of, you know, with GT Academy, one of the things was they, before they did any high profile races like Dubai 24 and stuff that was publicized, these kids had to go off and they were racing at Snetterton and club racing events and Cadwell Park and all these sort of under the radar club racing events that only Simon Aaron goes to. Um, <laughs> so, but just to give them real life racing experience. So you, you, you definitely need that because otherwise they don't have the respect. You know, you, you crash in a video game, you hit all control delete or whatever the equivalent is. Can you in your press Xbox. the pause button? The gentleman's been waiting in the middle. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. So anyway, that's, that's where I am. So just uh, down here then. Yeah, um, you're all quite, quite positive about um, the situation at Ferrari, but I've got a counter scenario to put, put to you, whereby um, Leclerc has a quite positive first half of the season and gets the team around him which unsettles Vettel, so yeah. shall we say. Um, and then you got, you've got an untested and new team principal who's going to have to control that dynamic for the rest of the season. Um, how, do, how do you feel about that? It's not possible. It's <laughs> really, I mean, it's, it, it is, you know, it, like you say, everything's new. Um, and there is potential potential for it to go wrong as well as right. Um, I don't think that will play out, but yeah, it's not. I, I got six to one and Leclerc for the championship, so I'll be quite happy with that. <laughs> you got 10? Yeah. Oh, wow. You were early. Uh, yeah, I was very early. He's down to three now, I know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, down here. Thanks. Um, thousandth race coming up very soon. Yes, China. Um, yeah, so for each of you, what's the best of the first 997 or wherever we're at, we're at at the moment? Best Grand Prix? Yes, Grand Prix. Oh, can I pick, I have to pick more than one, really. Suzuka 94. I've got... Personally, my personal opinion, that goes well. It's got... There's a few... Uh, for sheer drama, I thought uh, 2008 Brazil, uh, the championship clincher, and 97 Jerez was lots of drama there in that one. Uh, 2005 Japan was a mega race with Kimi and Fernando coming through. Um, I, uh, I, can't, I can't pick one of those. It's one of those. There was yeah, probably one three. about 1955, but we didn't know. We don't know, <laughs> about, didn't know it. about it. <laughs> it's not on telly, so we can't. I mean, it's either, it's either 2005 Japan, as you mentioned which was just a sensational Grand Prix. Mm. You had the three greatest drivers in the world coming from the back to the front, while the guy leading seemed to be unaware of it. <laughs> yeah. and, it <laughs> um, and it all happened, and you had... On the last lap. Alonso going around the outside of Michael at 130R at yeah. 208 miles an hour, yeah. putting a wheel on the grass to pass... Um, I think it was... 
was it Fissy that he passed? It might have been. Uh, he had to no, pass Fissy finished second. No, he finished second. So yeah. it was, it was Fissy. No. Whatever. And, and then, uh, yeah, and then Kimmy doing the pass on the last lap. Um, so that that's probably the best Grand Prix yeah. I've ever witnessed. Um, was but it? I don't know, I've still got a soft pot for France 79 with the uh, Villeneuve and Arnu battling for second. It's just sensational. It's five years before I was born. Six years before I was born. Of the ones I covered, I think uh, Japan 2005, as everything Mark said, plus just the most fabulous track. If I could pick one from history that I'd like to have attended, it would be the 1935 oh, German Grand Prix. That's before the World Championship. Yes, I know. It was still a Grand Prix. Uh, just, to, just to see a seven or, seven or eight-year-old Alfa Romeo beat the Silver Arrows in New Valari's hands. Mm -hmm. uh, was the microphone? Who's got the mic? Okay, far away. Uh, my question's about the aerodynamic changes for this season to improve overtaking, mm. ostensibly. Um, in a press interview, Lewis was asked, did he think it was going to make a big difference to the overtaking? And he actually came back with the response that he didn't understand that that's why the regulations had changed. Do you think that was a genuine response from Lewis, that he really doesn't take <laughs> notice and just drives the wheels off the bloody car that they give him? <laughs> or is it that he doesn't think it's going to make any difference? But I don't think it's going to make much difference. It's I don't know what Lewis's thoughts were, um, if I'm honest, because I didn't, I didn't hear what he said. I didn't see that interview. But uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a stopgap, isn't it? 2021 is the big change. I think they're trying to get a bit of data and a bit of direction for where they want to go with 2021. I, I don't, I, I think um, there's been a lot of, lot of um, more hype about how this could potentially make a difference, then, then the difference will actually be when we... And, and we can't judge it on Melbourne, frankly, because it's a terrible track we're taking anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, we've got to judge it on the first four races, but I, from everything we've seen, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference. The way somebody that's on that, uh, the, the research group for these changes, the 19 changes, described it was he didn't think it would make a great deal of difference, but had we just left it, it would have been a lot worse. Um, so it's that sort of mm. level of difference, but it, as Grun said, it's, a, it's going in a direction that the 21 uh, regs will be much more extreme. Not uh, sure it's worth the 15 million that the teams think they've had yeah, to spend on top, though. I think, though. like you say, it's partly to collect data to feed into the process for yes. 2021. And um, talking to Ross the other night, uh, he's very, very excited by it. And he said what they have at the moment is... Um, is massively better than what we have in right now. In what, what they have for twenty one as the model for the twenty twenty one car when they okay. and when they're processing it in, in CFD in tunnels, hmm. he said it it looks fantastic. So we okay. might be honest on Okay, uh, just to change subject back to the drivers. Um, hmm. yeah, if you look at the fifties and the sixties, possibly into the seventies <coughs> as well, drivers who drive lots of cars. They'd be, they'd be doing sports cars. I mean, if anybody's been to one of the Goodwood revivals and seen, yep. you know, the cars that Phil Hill drove or yep. Graham Hill drove or whatever, yes. Um, and I just wonder whether the sport itself and whether the drivers themselves have lost something as a result of this over-specialisation. I, I think it's really good to drive different things. I, I, I love going to Goodwood to drive all these all these different types of cars that I've, you know, 
there was one year we all rocked up and drove Austin A35s. And <laughs> last year I drove this utterly terrifying Canon McLaren around there. Um, but, but you learn something. And I think you, you grow and you develop as a driver. Um, there was a year I was doing um, sports cars and Formula E and jumping in between the two. Um, and it was really interesting because actually some of the stuff you learn on, on driving efficiently in Formula E meant that my fuel consumption at Le Mans was better than my teammates. You know, there's, there's stuff I think you learn from. And I've just been reading David Tremaine's book about um, this Jim Clark book, which is a, it's a fantastic book and an insight into obviously your dad's era. Uh, it, you know, this is just mad, the stuff they used to drive every single week. I think you, you do develop as a driver for sure. And also, the, the quality of the equipment in those days was much more basic. Um, I think if young, young drivers coming up now, they drive cars that are so highly developed, there's hardly anything wrong with them at all. And mm -hmm. so they're talking about very nuanced things when they're, when they're learning to, to adapt their style. And um, I'm not sure they get outside of the envelope much. You know, that's the, the thing. I drove a, a footwork, um, which was, was an appalling piece of, you know, it was, it was dangerous, quite frankly, you know. And, uh, um, and I had to drive the, the, the wheels off it to, to get it anywhere. Um, and you find out what you can do when, you, mm. when you've got a bad car. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, that is, that's probably quite rare these days for drivers to, in, in the, on the Formula One ladder to get to drive um, um, what is technically known as a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also, I think it's, a, it's um, Damon's brought an interesting point. I think it's a shame that they don't get to drive different types as well. Um, you know, he'll go nameless. But, for example, at Heritage, we, are, um, we took a... 1990 Williams um, with a six-speed manual car to Goodwood one year, the festival. And uh, there, was, there was a young, young driver that uh, they were looking at for the future. He was racing F2 at the time. And they thought, oh, you know, let him do a little bit of promo stuff and we'll see how he gets on with all the marketing and things like that. And, and he basically refused to drive the car because he said, I can't drive a manual. He says, I just, I just don't enjoy driving a manual gearbox. So I, 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 don't, I don't think I can do it. And I don't want to do it. Well, it, 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 it just blew me away. Then I realized he's actually never raced a manual yeah. well, gearbox car, which Lando wouldn't have, I guess. When, I mean, just, you know. when Lance Stroll was doing a bit of um, driver coaching, um, being coached, um, he was already a Formula One driver by this time. Mm. The coach had to spend the first morning of the session teaching him how to heel and toe because he'd never had to do that because he'd always yeah. had a paddle. And that's just what you do as yeah. a 17 year old when you're. Yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, driving that Can-Am car, the, you know, you're going third to fourth is like that. And it's just, you know, it's hilarious. But I think it's, it's, it's so, it gets your brain cells working. But I think also, to, to come back to your move. point, it pulls button. We're starting to run out of time slightly. There's Sorry. a gentleman over here who's got the... Um, thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I brought uh, a photograph taken um, by my stepfather that I thought might interest uh, Damon. And I uh, wonder if we could have a bit of nostalgic randomness about it, please. Oh, would you mind signing it, Damon? Oh, right. <laughs> charity event tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, God. Oh, okay. Oh, well, well oh, yeah, you, 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 you do your random it? nostalgia first. Uh, a random nostalgic what? Yeah. Might, well, something about I this or yeah. wife, right. maybe. I don't know. Um, well, um, sure. let's say it was '99 Silverstone, shall we? It's um, <laughs> flying banana. Um, <laughs> It's me in my yellow outfit, uh, in my guise as uh, 
a driver for Eddie Jordan, and that was interesting. Tell us and your best uh, Eddie story. <laughs> Go on, tell us your best Eddie story. God. I like I mean, the one where you... Guess. There's a really good one in your book. I don't know how many of... I'm sure a lot of you have read Damon's book, but there's a really good one about him when you went to that spot, the B&H meeting. Yeah, uh, I don't remember that one, but I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll tell you a story about, which I was thinking about when you were talking about testing. Go on. And, um, and it was that, um, you know, the, the idea that uh, Albon was, uh, was, not, was not confident that he could actually tell the engineers what he wanted from the car, and he was, he was a bit overawed by and excited about his Formula One debut. Well, my, my first run in a Williams, um, I had uh, a, a run at Silverstone, and Frank was there, sorry, Patrick was there, and um, so I was very, very excited at my first proper run in the, in the new um, Williams FW14, I think it was, a new e-car. And, um, and so out I went, did a few laps, I came in and, and Patrick stuck his microphone. He didn't need a microphone actually, but he went, <laughs> he, um, he, he plugged in and went, so what do you think of it, Damon? I said, it's fantastic. And he went, we're looking for a bit more than that, actually. Um, yeah, you're supposed to criticise the car, and I was thinking, well, I didn't feel comfortable about criticising the car. <laughs> so, but uh, as a new driver, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's um, it doesn't come easily to start being nitpicking when you just got your first run in a Formula One car. Okay, just so clear, that has nothing to do with that picture, that story. Nothing to do with okay. it. <laughs> well, you said random, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We are now pretty much out of time, so question over on my left be the last one, so. Uh, a short question and a long answer, probably. Um, Mark touched on his article today. Uh, Ferrari, heritage payment, yes or no? Ferrari what? Uh, should they get heritage payment, and how much? Like, the, oh, the proportion Christ. at the minute is <laughs> very controversial. We, no, we're not getting involved in our, that discussion at all. Next, <laughs> just, we're, for, it's, it's <laughs> way above our heads. <laughs> well, we're not gonna fix the problem, that's the point. <laughs> Yes, I, I have. It's, I have. It's, it's identical. It's identical to Red Bull. It is. I, I defy you to tell the difference if you're blindfolded, which I, I don't know what that means. But yeah. okay. Uh, have you got another story? No. I was just saying. <laughs> did you want to substitute? Since we ducked that question. <laughs> no. Well, we, we are. We okay. are now. Um, I'm afraid we are now out of time. But, ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you so much for um, participating tonight. Thank you again to Footman James Classic Car Insurance in business for 35 years, and also to Classic and Sports Finance for helping us make this possible. Um, we have got to do a raffle. Somebody needs to bring the raffle tickets down to the stage. Right. As I say, the, um, the, proce the proceeds for this are going to be split between the Halo Project and VDCT in India. Damon's picking the winner. I'm picking the winner, Mark. Oh, yeah, okay. just one. Just one. Oh. And the winner is? Oh, look at that. Name's on the back. Oh, on the back. Right. Oh. It's number two, Victoria Basley. Is Victoria, some of these have been sold online. Ah, Victoria. And the uh, two runners up. Uh. Craig Chapman. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Last but not least, Chris Stockdale.
Ladies and gents, that wraps Second things row. up. Thanks, thanks ever so much to our partners, to all of you for coming. And please, a warm hand for our panel, Damon, Corinne, Mark. Also, an apology to all those who sent in questions by Twitter. We do appreciate it, but we just had so many questions here, we ran out of time. And a warm thanks also to the IET for letting us use their auditorium. It's been brilliant. Thank you.